One Week Season. One week season fam. What is going on indeed? Welcome to the week 15 edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I will do my best to be your guide through this ultra strange week. I am JM to win. As always, throw this baby on 1.5x speed. Let's get started and let's have fun because. Fun is probably the most valuable thing we can have at this point in the week with so much news up in the air. So as you've seen on the site, you've been on the site throughout the week, you've probably noticed that we delayed a lot of the DFS interpretations until Friday night because we thought, well, we'll have more COVID news that will shake out by then. You may have noticed that I am putting out the player grid late, late, late Friday night instead of Friday afternoon or evening, because again, I wanted to wait for news to shake out. As I was getting ready to record the Angles podcast, two of the Sunday games got pushed to Tuesday, and that's probably not the last of the craziness and news. So what I want to focus on today, we're going to talk about some specifics on the slate. We're going to put together a bottom-up build. But more importantly, we are going to talk about the state of this slate. We are going to talk about less specifically the players and more specifically the strategies that would be most profitable if we played out this slate a hundred times. The first strategy I want to talk about is, well, this is my basically my answer to the first question in the Oracle. So the Oracle is for Inner Circle members, but we always make the first question free every week. So I'll go ahead and read the question and then read my answer. And then we will dive into what I mean by all of this and, and how I will be looking to use this this week. So the question, and it's the same first question every week, the question is, what makes this particular slate particularly unique? My answer was, this slate is seemingly getting more unique by the day. Let's start here. What do, here's what we, sorry, here's what we know for certain about this week's slate. Nothing. More than maybe any other week in recent memory, this week's slate is entirely in flux. COVID and coaching changes and potentially a few COVID-related coaching changes are the story of the week, which has made this a week in which nimble minds will almost certainly win the day. Here's how I'll be approaching things this week with regards to the hefty dose of uncertainty this slate is providing. I've spent very little time, this is still part of the answer, I've spent very little time messing around with rosters this week so far, Friday afternoon. I've messed around with player pricing and with thoughts on different games, but I don't want to get anywhere close to anything that might feel like a final decision just yet. One of the toughest things for a DFS player to do is to wait until Sunday morning to make all of the most important decisions. Because of the time considerations and schedule constraints of a wait until Sunday morning to make my decision setup, DFS players tend to avoid this. Instead, in an effort to remain fluid, they make, quote, soft decisions that they believe they will be willing to change later. 
But when it comes time to change these decisions, fear kicks in that they'll end up moving off the winning play, which can either prevent them from making changes or can put them in the wrong state of mind when it comes to crunch time. I say some of this, of course, from experience, and from experience, I know I'll want to avoid this in week 15 when so much of the news we are waiting on might not fully shake out until Sunday morning. I may not even save a single practice roster this week until Sunday morning, as I don't want to feel like I have a basic set of decisions, quote, already made. The slate itself is fluid, so fluidity as a player will be key. So if you're in Inner Circle, you heard me break down my week 13 roster a couple weeks ago. So week 13 was the week where we had like six or seven running backs who were underpriced due to role changes, injuries, so on and so forth. And then that was also the week where we got Gardner Minshew as the starting quarterback that kind of came out late Saturday night and then became pretty clear by Sunday morning that Sony Michelle was likely to be starting over Daryl Henderson. Most of you remember that week. So that week, what I talked about that week throughout the week on OWS was the best way to approach that week was to try to out-predict the field. And that was in direct contrast to the week before that, the weekend after Thanksgiving, and also the same thing that we had this last week, week 14, where the best way to win if we played out the slate 100 times was to not try to predict anything, was to instead have an understanding of where the good spots were and to allow the field to decide for you where you were going to go. In other words, if lots of things are equally certain or equally uncertain on a slate and chalk is going to form no matter what, then it makes sense over time. Let's put it like this. If one thing is going to happen 20% of the time, but it's going to be 20% owned, and if another thing is going to happen 17% of the time, but it's going to be 3% owned, you're going to make a lot more money betting on the lower owned spot even though it's slightly less likely to happen. So weeks like week 14, like week 12, there was a lot of value in just saying, look, there's a lot of uncertainty on this slate. My edge doesn't need to be out predicting the field. My edge can simply be allowing the field to decide what they're going to do. And I go in a direction that will make me money over time. So sandwiched in between those two weeks, and and obviously there's a sliding scale here and everything sort of ends up in one point on this sliding scale between these two types of weeks. But it's interesting that three, each of the last three weeks, we've had an extreme on this sliding scale. We've had two extremely unpredictable weeks and one extremely predictable week. So on the extremely predictable week, the Gardner Minshew, Sony Michelle week, we'll call it, I was building rosters on Saturday night and kind of felt like around 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m. Usually I wrap my rosters around 1 or 2 a.m. And around 11, 11.30 p.m., I kind of thought, you know what? I'm done. I don't have my final roster yet. I have a lot of my thoughts worked out, but I don't have my final roster yet. I'm going to wait until Sunday morning to build my final roster. And I felt really comfortable that that was the smartest thing for me to do at that point. And instead of doing that, I went ahead and said, well, let me just build a few more rosters and then I'll bookmark things and make my final decisions on Sunday morning. But of course, I built a a few final rosters. I put in my, quote, placeholder final roster Sunday morning, I woke up, I put together the Sunday morning inactives and late line movement email. I mentioned in that email that I really liked Gardner Minshew. I mentioned the reasons why. And then I mentioned that I didn't have him on my main roster, but that he was on my second favorite roster I had built. After I sent out that email, 
I thought, man, I really want to get a better Gardner Minshew roster than I have built so far. And I built a roster and 68 minutes before kickoff, I took a screenshot of the roster. And then 58 minutes before kickoff, I took a screenshot of the roster again, which means that I sat there for about 10 minutes, messed around with a couple things, took a screenshot of the exact same roster to sort of be like, okay, let me settle down with this roster for a minute. Let me think about it. Let me record the fact that I was thinking about this roster. And then I didn't put it into play. And the reason I didn't put it into play was because I had a placeholder roster in place that wasn't a bad roster. It was kind of my favorite roster to that point in the week. So Saturday night when I ended building, in my mind, it was still like, yeah, I have flexibility and willingness to change this on Sunday morning. But when I got to Sunday morning, my thought was, well, I I don't want to make a change this late. I already have a roster that I like. I already have my favorite roster to the 12 a.m., 1 a.m. point in the week that I like. And so I don't want to lose because I made this late change an hour before kickoff when no new news had come out at that point. And so there's this psychological thing of when you have a roster in place, even if in your mind you're like, yeah, I'm willing to move off of this. Once you've kind of locked it in, not just physically on DraftKings, but mentally, once you're like, okay, this is my favorite roster to this point, and if I find something that beats this roster, yeah, sure, I'll make that final change. Well, there comes this fear that you're like, yeah, but what if, I mean, we've all been there before, right? We've all built a roster changed it closer to kickoff or closer to first pitch or closer to tip off or whatever it might be. And the roster that we had would have done great. And the roster we switched to did poorly. And one of the things I've talked about for a long time is those late changes. In fact, I tracked those late changes one MLB season and it was a negative 30 K swing in making those late changes. If I had just stuck with my rosters, I would have made $30,000 more than all the last-minute changes I made. And what I, what I would always say is if no new news has come out and you've already locked in a roster and then games are about to start and you think, yeah, you know what? I can fix this. I can change this. I can improve this. Well, more than likely, no new news has come out. You haven't uncovered anything new. There's no new thoughts. Well, probably you're just switching to a roster that's equally likely or a little bit less likely to make you money. But it's a very different thing when you are building and then you say, okay, you know what? I'm not here yet, but I'll be here on Sunday morning. Let me bookmark this and come back to it on Sunday morning. And I also have, and some of you probably do as well, I have a lot of experience with this being a positive outcome. I've talked before about the the time in 2015, 2014, goodness, who knows, uh, when I finished first, second, third, and fourth in the Game Changer with two rosters that were double entered. And one of those two rosters was built on Sunday morning, and it was on one of those weeks where Saturday night, I knew I wanted to put two rosters in play. I had one roster I really liked, and I just didn't know yet on the other one. And I felt like, okay, I don't know yet, and pushing right now is not going to get me to my answer. Let me give my mind a little break. Let me have a, a chance to step back. Let me, I'll put it like this, let me allow the well to refill. Uh, Ernest Hemingway with writing used to talk about if you start dry at the beginning of the day where you don't know what you're about to be writing next, it's hard to get into a flow. So he talked about always stop 
at a point where you know what comes next, where you have a starting point for the next day. And he called it leaving a little bit of water at the bottom of the well. And he basically said, if you leave the well dry, it stays dry. But if you leave a little bit of water in there, that water fills up overnight. And so there's this, there's this mental thing where sometimes just taking a step back allows things to refill again. And so that particular week in 2014 or 2015, I had that thought on Saturday night and I took a step back. And shortly before kickoff on Sunday, I built my second roster. And that was the one that ended up finishing first and second. And the other one finished third and fourth. Whereas last week, I had that thought of, okay, take a step back. You don't have it yet. Bookmark this. And instead, I kept pushing a little bit more, built a few more rosters, built quote, my favorite roster to that point in the week, locked it in as a, as a placeholder, like, okay, I'm willing to change this, and then couldn't bring myself to make the change on Sunday morning. Now, in the small sample size of that one week, which was week 14, or week 13, sorry, in the small sample size of week 13, that roster that I would have switched to, my Sunday morning roster, would have finished eighth place in the game changer, and my roster that I stuck with finished out of the money. But even if things have been flipped around, I have a long enough track record, and probably a lot of us do, that when you get to that point where you're like, okay, uh, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not finished. I don't have my roster set. I don't know for sure what I'm going to be doing, but I'm done for now. This is the, this is the best I can do for now. And all I'm going to do beyond this point is just keep pushing. And so let me take a step back. Let, let me allow my mind to refill and come back Sunday morning. I have a long enough track record knowing that doing that is profitable for me over time. So this week, I want to take that side of, of our human psychology, that side where we know that as soon as we lock, if we're DFS players, as soon as we lock one of these rosters in and then say, okay, well, and then we'll come back to it Sunday morning and make changes. Well, it sort of frazzles our mind a little bit because there's also this thought in the back of our mind of, okay, I already have a roster in place and or or you know maybe your mini multi-entry maybe you're building 10 rosters maybe your mass multi-entry but regardless your core thoughts are going to be tailored a certain way and that could change dramatically by sunday morning this week and if you already have core thoughts sort of semi-locked in there's going to be two sides of your brain working at the same time one side, it's like a cautious side saying, well, don't change too much or don't swing too far away from what you were thinking before. Whereas realistically on a week like this, starting with a blank slate on Sunday morning is probably going to be more profitable than anything else. In fact, on weeks like this, where there's a lot of late news, what you'll see is a lot of the sharpest DFS players, the names that you know, that you've seen in the industry for a long time, those players are going to have a lot of the plays that didn't really get uncovered until Sunday morning. And the casual players are a lot less likely to have those plays. Over time, the sharper players are going to be able to take advantage of this a lot better than the casual players. And this is the type of week on which waiting until Sunday morning is almost certainly going to be the optimal way to approach this slate. And our sharpest competition is going to be doing that, which means those are the rosters we have to beat. I always like to think of things that way, right? If the there's a thousand people in a contest and sure you have to beat all thousand of them and sure the bottom 800 of those rosters or, or those players 
are going to win their share of tournaments. But the most wins are going to come from those top 200 rosters or those top 100 rosters or top 50 rosters from the best DFS players. So over time, you have to be thinking about what those players are doing and what you have to do in order to beat those players. Now, that brings in another side here of ownership. And obviously, if there's super obvious news on Sunday morning that everybody's pivoting to, then you need to assess, okay, how strong is this news and what else do I need to do as a result of this? So in order to help you with this, I am going to do sort of a half and half player grid this week. I'm going to have late Friday night player grid with initial thoughts, and then I will update it Sunday morning, either shortly before or shortly after inactives. So that's one side of what I will be doing to help you guys with this. But what I would recommend you do to help yourself with this is don't lock in any truly firm, solid thoughts. Now, I mean, there's... there's Certain things here, right? Like maybe you say, well, James Robinson, I want to weigh whether or not I want to play him at high ownership on this still bad Jaguars team, but they're playing the Texans. He's going to get all this work. More, I mean, not he's only going to get 30 touches, right? But he's going to get like a typical starter's workload. And he's only 5,400 on DraftKings. And there's nothing to really love at running back this week, right? Like you can think through those decision points so that they are already made for you by the time you get there. Another way to say that is there are still predictable elements on a week like this, and you still want to spend time with those predictable elements so that you kind of know, okay, among the more predictable elements, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, here's where I'm looking to go, here's where I'm not looking to go. But among all the unpredictability and insofar as putting a roster together, a cohesive structure together, this is the sort of week where you don't want to do, or where, in my opinion, you don't want to do too much too early. On top of that, this week's full of uncertainty. So you have, you know, kind of a lot of middling game totals or middling team implied, uh, Vegas implied team totals, or spots where, hey, this team has a high Vegas implied team total, but they're projected to win in a blowout. And so what are the chances of them actually putting up five or more touchdowns, you know, weighing all of those things. And on weeks where there's a lot of unpredictability, on weeks where the best game is maybe 70% as good as the best game on another week, or the best spot is maybe 70% as good as the best spot on another week. And yet, as we often talk about, chalk is still going to form. That gives you yet another reason to wait until deeper into the week to get a sense of, okay, here's where the field is going. Here's where the field is going that I feel is robust chalk that if we played out this slate a hundred times, this guy is going to perform really well, like as well as the field is expecting them to play. And here's what I feel is fragile chalk. And in the places where it's fragile chalk, I'm not trying, even if I like the spot, I'm not trying to predict things here. I'm just trying to allow DFS theory to work in my favor so that I make the most money I can make over time. So I will pivot over to this game or to this player, or I will, everybody's overconfident that this team will score the touchdowns through this guy. I will bet on the touchdowns coming through this guy who's supposed to be super low owned. So there's just a lot of reasons this week to wait until deeper into the week to make any of your final decisions. It's a very interesting type of setup. And, and it's made even more interesting by the fact that OWS is like among the bigger sites, right? Like I, I know the 
subscription numbers for Roto-Grinders as far as where they were a few years ago and where they likely are now. I have a good sense of the subscription numbers for Numberball and for ETR. And so when we talk about these different sites that are kind of in this range, Awesome Site and ETR and Numberball and Roto-Grinders and OWS, among these sites, we're also kind of the least corporate of the sites. We're the most fluid of the sites because all of the final decisions really flow through Aaron and myself, Rotomaven and myself, and they kind of flow up from the content providers. If Hilo has a thought and he says, hey, we should do things this way, okay, we'll probably do things that way. If Xander has a thought, we're going to do, let's do things this way, okay, we'll probably do things this way. And so on a week like this, we have a lot more flexibility and fluidity in our ability to say, okay, look, this is the way that this week sets up. So we will adjust the way we're providing content to account for that. So instead of the DFS interpretations coming out by the end of day Thursday or very early Friday morning, we were like, okay, let's wait until later to get DFS interpretations out. Instead of getting the player grid out at its scheduled time, it's like, okay, we'll wait a little bit. Instead of having a complete player grid, we're able to say, okay, let's kind of get get something out and then let's do a second version Sunday morning that kind of amends some of what's in here right now based on the new news. Angle's podcast is usually very specifically focused on the week and and the players from a, like a, a, hey, let's talk about the different games and the way different things set up. This week, let's focus a little bit more on the strategy. So I think that from that perspective as well, it's an interesting week because there is edge in basically hearing or having the thoughts that you've probably already had yourself reaffirmed by us, where we're, where we're able to say, look, we're not going to try to predict things. I was getting texts from some content providers from other sites yesterday and the day before with like very specific player-focused questions. And in my mind, I'm like, why are we focusing on this right now on a week like this? Don't think about very specific player-focused questions at this point. That's why. Why? Because you've said to readers that, hey, this comes out on this day at this time and it covers these things, well, that don't do a disservice to readers, right? And so I think that's a really cool thing this week as well, just recognizing where our edges is, where our edges is, where our edges are, and how we're able to sort of maximize our edge a little bit on a week like this. Last thing I'll say on this, the there's a, a, a thing of, of like cumulative edges. So I was on Pete Overzet's podcast this morning, Friday morning. Um, check it out if you have not listened to it. It was really fun to talk, uh, basically because of how weird this week is. So usually the way that Pete runs that podcast is like half of it is focused on DFS strategy and, and macro theory, and then half of it's focused on the slate at hand. So we sort of skipped the slate at hand stuff today. I just talked about DFS theory, because again, why spend a bunch of time on Friday talking about, but at, at the point when we recorded that podcast, two of, the, two of the games that are no longer on the main slate, were still on the main slate. In fact, two of the more, or at least in one of those spots, one of the more popular games, that Rams and Seahawks game. And so that willingness to be fluid is, again, important. But one of the things that we talked about on that podcast today was a lot of edges aren't huge edges, but what we're wanting to do is just find 
here's a little edge, here's a little edge, here's another little edge, and sort of pile these things together. Because if we can stack a bunch of small edges, it becomes a big edge over time. And so none of this stuff that we're talking about is like game changing for this particular week. But these are the little things. And, and as we always talk about, every week is different. And in fact, that's one of our biggest edges is recognizing that every week is different and that the way we approach roster construction and even our schedule and process based on what the week is giving us should be different. And so basically taking that big edge, applying it to this week, and then looking for the little edges that like, okay, if we played out this slate a hundred times, look, we're still competing against the top DFS players. The top DFS players are going to recognize these things and they're going to adjust accordingly. But let's gain some big edges on the field. And then let's look, look for ways to gain little edges on even the sharpest players by kind of finding the ways to pivot off of what they're on and finding ways to do things a little bit differently, approach things a little bit differently, look at things through a different lens. And that's what's going to get us to the top of the leaderboards this week. Okay, with that, we are going to get to this week's bottom-up build. Before we get to the bottom-up build, there was... Actually, let's go ahead and talk about this. So one of the things that we did last week is... Two weeks ago? Uh, no, yeah, last week. We opened up something really cool for Inner Circle. We're going to open it up for everybody in, I think, week 18. But basically what we did was we opened up an opportunity to purchase an OWS for life membership, which is pretty cool. Uh, we are charging $3.99 for it. So if you jumped into Inner Circle right now and bought a 12-month membership, you would be paying $1.79. So basically, if you expected to be using Inner Circle for more than two years, you would basically pay for a lifetime subscription to OWS. That means that if you're not playing DFS heavily four or five years from now, but you still pick it up every once in a while, maybe you play four or five weeks out of the year and you wouldn't want to pay for a full subscription for that, you would still have access to everything in Inner Circle and everything in OWS annual. Maybe in five, six, seven years, you're not playing DFS anymore, but you're still playing season long and you would still have access to the NFL Edge and you would still have access to the scroll and all of our late week content and the projection system, which can help you quite a bit in season long. Maybe you're doing sports betting in a few years, prop betting in a few years, and all of this can help you in that area. Or maybe you're still a hardcore DFS player in four or five years and you're just using OWS for free at that point because you paid a one-time fee. So uh, right now it is only available to Inner Circle members. We opened up 200 of those memberships last week and we're already down to only 117 of those left, which is pretty cool. I would imagine that by the time we get to week 18, we'll probably have about 80 of those left. Uh, and in the Angles email that week, we'll open this up to everybody. But uh, a note to Inner Circle members, just a quick note, we are at 117 of those memberships remaining. And again, we will be opening this up to everybody in a few weeks. So you got a few weeks left where this is exclusive to you guys. And again, you guys can find that through the Inner Circle page that you can access on the homepage and you'll find an OWS for life link and go to that page from there. The rest of you, you guys will get an email in week 18 or get the, get the information in the angles email in week 18. Okay. Let's look at, oh, actually one other thing. Uh, we're doing the missions drawings this week. Uh, we're going to announce the winners next week. 
And we'll reach out to you individually if you won. And we'll also uh, announce the winners in the Angles email next week, week 16. So heads up on that. All right. This week's bottom-up build. So this week's bottom-up build has a stack that is a game stack that has three players. It has three running backs. It has three wide receivers. It has a tight end. It has a defense. We are going to start at the stack. And the stack is, so for any of you who are new, which is probably like four or five of you at this point in the season, the bottom-up build, we do a DraftKings roster with a 44K salary cap. I was actually thinking about this last week, and I'll, I'll share this with you guys as well, because any place where we can find little edges, little ways to improve our play is valuable. I found it to be, and I'm sure a lot of you have found it to be, really valuable. I think we started doing the bottom-up build in 2019. And a lot of us have found it to be really valuable to force ourselves through this thought exercise of building with a salary cap of only 44K because it forces you to make different decisions. It forces you to look through a different lens and then you can apply some of the things that you've found through that type of thinking when you're building your main roster. Another exercise that I've talked about uh, several times that is really valuable for me is building at least one roster around each game on the slate practice rosters to where you know you're not putting them in play. And so you have no pressure of of thinking like, oh, can I really pull the trigger on this? But you still build them as if it's a roster you're going to put it into play. In other words, you still have to think through it and focus and make those tough decisions. That can help you to see things that other people don't see because there's certain players. If you think, how do I build around... Texans Jaguars. It's not a great example this week because Urban Meyer's been fired and James Robinson's probably going to get more touches and everybody's kind of on that game. But let's say that this is midseason Jags Texans on a slate with like a bunch of stuff to like. And you think, how do I build around this game? Well, that sort of forces you to think about players and to think about combinations that you might not otherwise have thought of. A lot of times it'll bring up nothing, but every once in a while, it'll turn up a player or a player combo that you wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Uh, If you are an MME player, like Sonic talks about this, Sonic puts at least one roster into play around each game on the slate so that if a game just goes totally different than people are expecting, he has that game covered. Maybe you're only building one roster on that game, but that game, at least you have one live roster built around this game that almost nobody else is building around. So these little thought exercises can help us a lot. So one of the ones that I started thinking about last week that's kind of interesting is also building with like a 55K salary cap, which then allows you to say, who do I really like the most on this slate? Who do I think gives me the clearest shot at... 250 points on this slate. There probably won't be uh, anything that can give you 250 points on a weird week like this. But what can give me just like maximum upside? And you can kind of combine that type of thinking with the 44K salary cap thinking to see, okay, here are the 
expensive players that I'm prioritizing. Here are the expensive players that I think would give me my best overall roster slash combination toward first place. And here's my bottom up build. Here are the players that I think can actually allow me to still capture upside while saving salary. And let's find a blend of these two to get to that 50K salary cap that can give me this path to a first place finish. So uh, I think that's an interesting one as well. If you want to mess around with that is building with a larger salary cap in mind. But we are on the bottom up build. It's a 44K salary cap. And one of the things that was really cool for me this year was Dustin has been breaking down the bottom-up build winner in the reflection scroll at the start of each week. And it stood out to me that every week, the bottom-up build winners among you guys, you guys were building like with less of a value focus than I had been building the bottom-up builds in the past. Now, obviously, my bottom-up builds are also kind of a pathway to be able to talk through the slate, but I've also tried to use it as an example to say, hey, here's how we would build for first place if everybody had a 44K salary cap. And the rosters that were actually getting first place in the bottom-up build contest were ones that were paying up for an 8K quarterback or paying up for an 8K running back or paying up for an 8K wide receiver and trying to capture one of those 40-point scores, one of those scores that could just blow past everybody else who's kind of building around that mid-range of pricing. So you've probably noticed that most of my bottom-up builds during the second half of the season have tried to target upside by finding ways to do things like that. So one of the games that is most interesting to me, now it's Friday, I haven't looked at ownership projections yet, and frankly, ownership projections at this point in this particular week can't be considered to be particularly robust because we expect so much to change. We expect not only so much to change, but public consensus as far as ownership goes tends to be created through content providers and content providers are having to wait to make their decisions and sort of sort through all of this. And they'll have updates on Saturday and new thoughts and that will sort of reshape ownership and so on and so forth. But I say that to say I have no idea if this is going to be a popular spot or not. But I think it's a very interesting game. And that's the Packers-Ravens game. Now, I mentioned in... Uh, I'll mention it briefly because it's it's behind the inner circle paywall in the Oracle. But the I, I'm not sure that the field will necessarily realize that the Packers, I think that people will look at the Packers and say, hey, they've been more aggressive lately. They've been putting up points. I'm not sure that the field will necessarily realize that a lot of that aggressiveness was game flow driven. And so in other words, we have a, a decent sized sample of how Matt LaFleur wants to win games. We know that Aaron Rodgers is always going to take the play clock down close to zero because he likes to collect as much information from the defense as he can. The Packers are not going to just speed up and become a fast-paced team all of a sudden. So while the Packers could, through efficiency, end up having a really big offensive day, the best way for the Packers to have a big offensive day is for the Ravens to at least put enough pressure on this game for the Packers to have to stay aggressive. Doesn't mean that the Ravens have to have a huge game, but similar to the Bears last week, there just has to be enough moving forward on the other side of the ball for the Packers to have to keep responding. If the Packers keep responding, though, we have an incredible setup for this Packers team. Excellent Ravens run defense, totally decimated 
Ravens pass defense. Did I say Raiders a moment ago? Ravens. Uh, a totally decimated Ravens pass defense. So the clearest path for points for the Packers is going to be through the air. And if the Ravens are able to keep this game close enough, the Packers should continue attacking through the air. So that leads me to an interesting stack here. I don't know if I'll end up using this stack, but it's definitely been in my mind since I first started looking at this slate at the beginning of the week. And that stack is Tyler Huntley at quarterback. Tyler Huntley costs only 5400 Tyler Huntley against Chicago completed 72.2% of his passes. Last week against Cleveland com- completed 71.1% of his passes. Now, he averaged only 6.1 yards per pass attempt against Chicago. He averaged only 7.1 yards per pass attempt against Cleveland. So we shouldn't expect Tyler Huntley to have a super clear shot at a 300-yard game through the air. With that said, we know how the Ravens are going to play. They're going to try to run the ball early. The the Ravens have been less run-focused this year because they don't have the same run game they had in the past. But they're going to try to be run-focused early. But if the Packers start pulling away, the Ravens are going to click back over to the same sort of pass-leaning mode they've been in throughout this season. Uh, In Huntley's first start, he had 36 pass attempts. And last week, in three quarters of play, he had 38 pass attempts. So if he ends up with 35 pass attempts and ends up with about 240, 250 passing yards, well, we can also keep in mind that Rashad Bateman, Hollywood Brown, even Mark Andrews, they're all capable of busting off big plays. One big play, two big plays can be the difference between a 240, 250-yard passing day and a 300-yard passing day, which is an extra five points because you get the extra two points for the extra 50 yards plus the three-point bonus. Additionally, in those seven quarters of play, Huntley has 13 carries for 85 yards. So we can focus on the bad with Huntley. We can focus on the fact that he's fumbled the ball three times in these seven quarters of play, plus thrown an interception. He lost two of those fumbles, uh, plus thrown an interception, plus taking a lot of sacks. I mean, Lamar Jackson's taken a lot of sacks as well this season. The Ravens have given up the most sacks in the NFL. So let's not pin all of that on Huntley. And Huntley just becomes very interesting from a floor ceiling standpoint, especially when we consider where we're at in the season, when we consider the fact that most players at this point are either appropriately priced or overpriced for their typical range of production. It becomes harder and harder and harder this deep into the season to find those 4x salary multipliers that we're typically looking for. So Tyler Huntley at 5,400, where you feel pretty comfortable that, let's say he gets to just 200, we can even say 225 passing yards and turns the ball over once. Well, that's eight fantasy points already. Let's say he adds another 50 rushing yards. That's 13 fantasy points already. He's almost at 3x his salary without with a really bad passing game and just a moderate rushing game and no touchdowns accounted for. So what does he need in order to get up to 23 points, right? If he 
gets an extra 50 passing yards and throws two passing touchdowns, he's at 23 points. If one of those, quote, passing touchdowns is a rushing touchdown, he's up to 25 points. So at 5,400, he puts us in great shape, especially when we think about, well, it's not outlandish to think that he could break off a long run or two against this Packers run defense. It's not outlandish to think he could get two rushing touchdowns. Said differently, it's not outlandish to think that he could get up to 29 points, 30 points at 5,400. In a game where Tyler Huntley is doing well, in a game, as we often say, as soon as you put a player on a roster, you're now saying that player has a huge game. You're now saying that player has a ceiling game. So the rest of the roster You want it to specifically tell the story of how you would get to first place with that player having a ceiling game. So one of the things we talked about in Inner Circle on Tuesday uh, as an example of this was I played Lamar Jackson last week. I liked Taysom Hill last week more than Alvin Kamara. But as soon as I played Lamar Jackson, I wasn't playing Taysom Hill. So what does that mean? Well, we also talked last week uh, in the Angles podcast, and I believe again in the player grid, that it would be very difficult for Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara to go for 4x their combined salary. Their likeliest range was more like 44 to 47 combined points, and they needed about 54, 55 to go 4x their combined salary. So in other words, if let's say 47 points, what the example I used last week was if Taysom Hill gets to 27 points, Kamara's probably getting 20. But we can flip that around. If Kamara's getting to 27 points, Taysom Hill's probably getting about 20, which was pretty much exactly what we saw. Kamara had 27 points. Hill had about 22 points. So as soon as I put Lamar Jackson on a roster, I don't have Taysom Hill on that roster. And that means that if Taysom Hill has like a 27-point game, it was probably pointless to have played Lamar Jackson. Because I was playing Lamar Jackson, hoping that he would get, uh, obviously, 27 as like a minimum, but hoping he's getting a ceiling game, hoping he's getting like 35 points. But if if Lamar's getting 35 and Taysom's super cheap, Taysom's getting 27 at high ownership, I'm not really gaining much ground. Sure, I get eight extra points, but I spent 2K extra in salary to get those eight extra points. So as soon as I put Lamar Jackson on the roster, I'm saying Lamar Jackson is the player who's going to help me get a first place finish. Well, the likeliest path for me to get to first place is for Taysom Hill to also disappoint. So even though I liked Taysom Hill a little bit more than Kamara, and even though I liked Eckler a little bit more than Kamara last week, the fact that I put Lamar Jackson on that roster meant that my clearest path to first place was a game in which not only does Lamar Jackson hit, but also Kamara hits to take away points from Taysom Hill. And Kamara hits outscoring Austin Eckler, thus putting me ahead of the rosters that rostered Austin Eckler instead of Kamara. How does Austin Eckler disappoint? Well, probably from somebody else on the Chargers putting up points, whether Mike Williams or Jalen Guyton or Josh Palmer. So I put Mike Williams on that roster. So again, as soon as we put a player on a roster, as soon as we say this player is going to be a player who sort of clears out a path to first place for me, we want to start building the rest of the roster to also tell that story. So if Huntley is getting us to a first place build, well, as we talked about, that's basically pushing the Packers to remain aggressive through the air. 
So the standard way to build this would be Huntley plus a pass catcher or two from his side of the ball. But I don't know where Huntley's points are coming from. I, it would be more valuable for me. My best path to first place would be if Huntley breaks off an 80-yard rushing game or a 100-yard rushing game and scores one or two touchdowns on the ground. And then an expensive Mark Andrews and a, a mildly expensive Hollywood Brown are actually overpays for what they're going to get through the air in this game. So the story that Huntley having a big game actually tells, the best way for me to get first place is actually for Huntley to get a lot of points on the ground, which maximizes his ceiling, but also that then forces the Packers to remain aggressive against this pass funnel Ravens defense. So I put two Packers pass catchers on this roster, Devontae Adams and Alan Lazard. So we could run through all the numbers and basically say, look, in this type of setup, sure, Aaron Rodgers is also going to have a big game if Lazard and Devontae Adams both have huge games or tournament-worthy games, right? We have to look at the state of the slate as a whole, as always. On this particular week, Devontae Adams' salary multiplier matters less to us than his raw points. There aren't going to be a lot of players who are putting up 30-plus points. So if Devontae Adams puts up 31, 32, 33 points, he doesn't get to 4x, but we're still very happy with that on a week like this. So I say that to say we don't need Devontae Adams to put up 45 and Lazard to put up 26, in which case Rodgers is probably putting up north of 40. We just need these two to combine for about 50 points. If they combine for 45 to 50 45 to 50 points, we're probably in really good shape. And in that type of setup, Aaron Rodgers is probably getting, I haven't run through these exact numbers in my head, but just off the top of my head, he's probably getting around 27, 28, 29, 30 points. So I, if I'm getting 25, 26, 27 from Huntley, well, I'm saving a lot of salary and only missing out on a couple points. So not only does this make even more sense than a Rodgers plus Devante plus Lazard stack, because in that roster, I'd have to bring it back. We've already said the Ravens are going to have to push the Packers in order for the Packers to really blow up. The Ravens are going to have to be keeping pace. So now I'd have to bet on the Ravens keeping pace through the air with a backup quarterback. Now, uh, uh, speaking of late news and having to wait on things, I'm saying all of this, assuming Huntley starts. We could find out Sunday morning. I think it'll come down to the wire, but we could find out Sunday morning Lamar Jackson starting. So this is also a thought experiment more than anything to sort of walk through this and talk about how we would put this together and, and how we think through building a roster like this. But assuming that we have this backup quarterback, what do we want to bet on? You put Aaron Rodgers on the roster, you're saying Aaron Rodgers at 7,500 has one of the top games on the slate. And we know that that's only likely to happen if the Ravens are keeping pace. And now that you put Rodgers as the quarterback, you're saying that the Ravens are keeping pace either through Devontae Freeman or through the Ravens putting a bunch of points through the air. Now you're having to pay overpay for Mark Andrews or pay this mildly high price for Hollywood Brown. Instead, we can say, look, Huntley is the one who keeps pace here. Huntley ends up scoring pretty close to what Rodgers scores, but Devontae Adams and Alan Lazard are much more valuable in this type of setup than anything on the Ravens side of the ball, the Ravens passing attack. What's great about this then is that this makes more sense probably a lot more sense than the conventional stacks from this game. 
But because people have a hard time pulling the trigger on these outside-the-box thoughts, it would be way lower owned than the conventional stacks from this game. You're far less likely to see Huntley naked plus two Packers pass catchers than you are to see Huntley paired with a pass catcher or to see Aaron Rodgers paired with two pass catchers. So not only do we get the actual sharper build in this spot, but we also get a totally different type of setup in the field, which gives us a clearer path to a first place finish. So starting point for this roster, Huntley, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard. As always, I'm going to be looking to start my rosters with my game-focused bet. As we've already talked about, I'm actually waiting until Sunday morning to firmly decide my game-focused bet this week, but this sort of allows us to see... Well, I'll say it like this. This is a game that has been standing out to me all week. And so this kind of allows us to dig into how we might build around this game to also kind of help us think through how we might build around other games and try to find things that others are not finding. So starting point, Huntley, Devante, and Lazard. Now, obviously, we have now rostered the most expensive player on the slate in Devante Adams. So... We are staying under a 44K salary cap, which means the next thing we're looking to do is save some salary. So first step for me after after getting, uh, I almost said Lamar, after getting Huntley and the two pass catchers on here was prioritizing where do I have the most certainty? Where do I feel best about any individual play? And that next player is James Robinson. So James Robinson goes on. Obviously, he's underpriced for the role. He's not super cheap, but 5400 for a starting running back. At this point in the season, we'll call that super cheap. And even if he had been 6400 if that's the player I'm prioritizing, if that's where I feel there's the most certainty, and if beyond this I'm going to be down at cheaper wide receivers or cheaper running backs anywhere, anyway where it's more volatile, I don't want to prioritize salary first. I want to prioritize certainty first. So James Robinson goes on. And that leaves us with Huntley, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, James Robinson, and four skill position players left plus a defense. So the next place I went was tight end because I wanted to get a sense of what's available at tight end and what is the range of scoring at tight end this week. There are some interesting tight ends in that high 4K range who are probably going to go high 4K, low 5K range, who are probably going to go overlooked. Dalton Schultz is one of them. Dawson Knox is another one. But when those guys hit, they're typically getting you 14 points, 16 points, maybe 19 points. And when they miss, they're still getting you those seven, eight, nine points that the cheaper tight ends are typically going to get. So on a week like this, do I want to overpay for 15 to 20 points? Or do I want to find the cheap tight end who can go above the other cheap tight ends and allow me more flexibility in other spots. Said differently, tight end, if tight end is really weak across the board, do you want to pay up and spend that extra salary and hope that you get something that goes off? Or do you want to say, look, 
let's just bet on tight end sort of failing. And now I'm taking Mark Andrews and George Kittle out of this conversation because they're in like a totally different price tier and a totally different conversation, right? You're, you're rostering Kittle hoping he gets 25 plus and you're, and I say 25 plus rather than 30, which is his four X because on this week, especially with the way tight end looks 25 plus from Kittle, you'd be happy with it. 20, 21, 22 plus from Mark Andrews, you'd be happy with it at 6,400. So we'll take those guys out of this conversation. And those guys are kind of off my list on this bottom up build anyway, because of the money we spent on Devontae Adams. So what I ended up doing was I kind of flipped through all these cheap tight ends to say, who can actually get to 15 points? And the player I ended up settling on was Evan Ingram. We would expect the Cowboys to be putting up points. Mike Glennon's going to be under center. Under center, it's going to be ugly for the Giants. But again, low on pass catchers. The Cowboys should be playing with a lead. The Giants should be having to throw the ball. Evan Ingram should be getting his typical five, six, seven targets. And that means that it's going to be tough for him to not get at least six, seven, eight points. And we've seen him do it this year. He can get up to 12 points. He can get up to 15 points. And if he lucks into a touchdown on a week in which he also lucks into the yardage, he could get you 18 points at 3,100. But given the state of the slate, now we never want to just take the cheap guy who's just the cheap guy. Like James O'Shaughnessy. I'm not on James O'Shaughnessy on this roster because if everything comes together, he probably gets you like 13 points because he has no aftercatch ability. So I want to, if everything's ugly, I want to at least take the guy who has some outlier, like non-two touchdown outlier potential to put up some points. So Evan Ingram could get two touchdowns. That would be surprising. That would be an outlier. O'Shaughnessy could get two touchdowns. That would be surprising. That would be an outlier. But that's about an equal outlier for those two guys. So in terms of the other way that we can get upside, neither guy's going to have big downfield roles. But yards after catch, broken plays, that's the other way that we can get upside here. And Evan Ingram kind of fits that bill better than any of the other cheap tight ends in my mind at this point in the week. So Evan Ingram at 3,100, again, saying, look, I don't love this play, but let me find the cheap guy who I feel pretty confident can get me some points and has a better shot than the other cheap tight ends at some ceiling. And that allows me to say tight ends taken care of. I don't want to overthink that spot because it's ugly. I don't want to try to out predict everybody else. I just want to take what's the, what I feel is the sharpest way to go and then see what my salary looks like from there. Next spot was pretty easy for me, and that's Devontae Parker. Devontae Parker is basically has basically been a lock for seven to nine targets this year when he has been playing, when he's been healthy, and that was with Jalen Waddell on the field. Jalen Waddell will not be on the field this week, so seven to nine targets for Devontae Parker is kind of like the lowest end we should expect, and 10, 11 12 targets. Actually, in that tight end discussion, Mike Gusecki is another one who is interesting. Although, again, similar to Knox and Schultz, uh, Gusecki's had a hard time topping 20 points with Tua under center. So not that he can't do it. And he's certainly very much in the mix for me this week as well with Waddle out, with the Dolphins basically having 10 extra targets to spread around this week. But I ended up going with Devontae Parker, who is basically, if, if, if he had been healthy, and production had worked out a certain way, he could be priced at 5,900 right now. And what I mean by that is 
player pricing changes based on past production. So Marquez Valdez Scantling a few weeks ago, we could get him for under 4K. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, you got to pay 5K for him. Michael Gallup earlier in the season, we can get him in the low 4Ks and he really still hasn't done much. And now you got to pay 5,500 to get him. So Devontae Parker down here at 4,300, you give it two to three weeks of Waddle being out. If Waddle were out for two to three weeks and the production were to shake out the way that it easily could over that stretch, well, then within a few weeks, we could be paying close to 6K for Devontae Parker. He has the skill set, the athletic profile, the role in the offense on an offense that likes to pass the ball enough that it would be very easy for his price to climb to that level. So at 4,300, especially on a bottom-up build, he becomes kind of a no-brainer next bet for me. So that puts us at Huntley, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, Devontae Parker, and Evan Ingram. That gives us defense special teams and two spots remaining, those two spots being running back and flex. So the next spot I went to was defense. And there are some expensive defenses that I like. There are a lot of good defenses playing against bad quarterbacks this week. Uh, Miami is playing against Zach Wilson, who might as well be a backup at this point. The Cowboys are playing against Mike Glennon. But it's not just the quarterback that matters. It's the whole team. It's the macro ability of a team to make something happen. So going down in price a little bit, and I, and I did this to say, look, I'm willing to, even on the bottom-up build, I'm willing to spend 36, 3700 on defense on a week like this, where there's a lot of unpredictability, and if I can get the defense that puts up 20 points. It's like last week, I had Antonio Gibson on, on that roster of mine. I had Lamar Jackson, who got like 1.3 points and then got hurt. And I was still in the money into the fourth quarter of the late games, largely because I got 24 unowned points from the Chiefs. Well, also because I got 31 unowned points from Mark Andrews. But uh, the biggest boost was nobody had the Chiefs and they put up 24 points. So if you can find that defense that can actually blast off for a big game, especially if people aren't really on that defense, that can be such a separator. And so cheap defenses are great, but I never want to, and by the way, the way I ended up on the Chiefs was speaking of, of, of DFS theory and what is our clearest path to first place. Once I put Antonio Gibson on that roster, I wasn't playing Josh Jacobs. So I wanted Josh Jacobs to disappoint in that same price range. The clearest way for Josh Jacobs to disappoint is he's typically reliant on game flow. And so if the Chiefs defense is having a big game, that's probably hurting Josh Jacobs. Slash, if Josh Jacobs is having a bad game, that's helping the Chiefs defense. So it wasn't about hey, I really like the Chiefs' defense, similar to the Alvin Kamara thing. Chiefs' defense wasn't at the top of my list, but it was like, okay, well, this is my clearest path to first place now that I have placed the bets that I have been placing. As soon as I placed Lamar on there, it kind of pushed me over to Alvin Kamara, which pushed me over to Mike Williams. And then as soon as I put Antonio Gibson on there, that pushed me over to the Chiefs' defense. But I looped through all those thoughts in order to circle back to this idea that cheap defense is great. And hey, the, the cheap defense that can get us six, seven points is great. But if you can find the defense that puts up the huge score, where a couple weeks ago for me it was the Dolphins, last week it was the Chiefs, that just, Dolphins against the Panthers. 
Chiefs against the Raiders. These defenses that in retrospect, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, they could put up 20 points in that spot. But people aren't on them beforehand. And so if you can find those defenses that have that type of upside, that can help quite a bit. So obviously, some of these more expensive defenses have this upside. But I wanted to think about who would be less likely to go heavily owned. Again, I haven't looked at ownership projections yet. But the perception around the Titans is different from their reality. Everyone knows the Titans offense isn't great right now. Everyone also knows the Steelers defense hasn't looked great of late. And people don't think of, even with all the injuries to the Titans, people don't seem to or tend to think of attacking the Titans, de- Titans offense with a defense. But the Titans have taken the fifth most sacks in the NFL this season. The Steelers, as is the case almost annually, rank top two in sacks per game this season. So the Steelers' defense at 3K in a game with a depressingly low over-under makes a lot of sense and is, I feel, something that would be different enough on this roster to also create a little bit of separation from the field. So that gives us Huntley, Devontae, Lazard, James Robinson, Devontae Parker, Evan Ingram, and the Steelers' defense, and leaves us with running back and flex. So the running back I went to was Michael Carter. Michael Carter was basically the 1A and 1B back before his injury. And so the Jets were still running a Uh, Well, a two-man backfield before Tevin Coleman returned. And then in Michael Carter's last fully healthy game, uh, Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson, it was a three-way committee at running back. But Carter had kind of like the 1A and 1B role. And Coleman and Johnson were splitting the the two role. It was like 2A and 2B. So in Carter's last game, it was against Buffalo, his last game before he got hurt, he had 20 touches. And Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson split 13 touches. Michael Carter is, was basically, it was a, I think it was 19 touches, 14 touches, 24 touches, and 20 touches in his last four healthy games. At 4,700 on a Jets team missing its top two wide receivers, uh, with Michael Carter having a role that lends itself to pass-catching upside. He is a very interesting play at 4,700. Especially, A, given that this is the bottom-up build, but also, B, if we were talking about a 50K salary cap, given the state of the slate, most running backs on this slate are pretty fundamentally overpriced. Najee Harris is 7,800. Well, in his last, well, goodness, seven games, he's topped 21 points one time, 25.4 last week, 15.7, 6 6.7, 16.9, 20.3, 16.8, 21. So you're paying a premium to get, you know, two to two and a half X salary in most scenarios. Ezekiel Elliott is 7,300. His last four games, 9.6.7.16.9, Are you kidding me? Joe Mixon, two targets last week, one the week before, four the week before, zero the week before. 
Samaj P. Ryan has been taking on this pass catching work. Joe Mixon is kind of a yardage and touchdown back right now, playing in a tough spot against Denver at 7,200. Cordero Patterson has been losing pass catching work to Mike Davis. So he's basically a 16, 13 to 16 carry, three to five target player right now, which is fine. But at 6,900, that's quite a leap to take, especially against the 49ers. Aaron Jones had eight touches last week, and he's 6,600. Saquon Barkley is on this awful offense against Dallas. His last four games, 18.5 DraftKings points, 13.4, 9.3, 11.6. And he costs 6,500. So let's look at Michael Carter's last four games. Now, again, keep in mind that Tevin Coleman was out for three of these, but his last four healthy games... 18.2, 9.6, 32.2, and 17.4. Imagine getting that type of score for that price when everybody else is paying up for that type of score for these higher price tags. James Conner is now expected to play, which means he and Chase Edmonds will be splitting work against Detroit. DeAndre Swift is out. It looks like Eli Mitchell is going to end up being out again, which means uh, Jeff Wilson will get the carries and Jermichael Hasty will get the pass game work and Debo Samuel will take stuff away as well. Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon still splitting work directly down the middle. A.J. Dillon is still the 1B to Aaron Jones unless he takes on an even bigger workload this week in a tough run matchup against Baltimore. And at this point, we're down in the 5,700s, right? We've got Chuba Hubbard, we've got Miles Gaskin, we've got Devontae Freeman, but we would expect with how ugly things are, Miles Gaskin and Devontae Freeman to go over-owned relative to their actual expectations and ceiling. So Miles Gaskin, 6.9 points his last game, then 19.2, 18.6, 5.5, 16.7, 8.5. Perfectly fine. But basically, it's in this 3x range, and he's probably going to be decently popular. So wouldn't you rather find the guy who you think could go past him? Devontae Freeman, 12.2 points, 20.7, 7 points, 20 points, 8.8 points. So again, he can get up to this 4x, but he can also finish below 2x. And if we expect the Packers to be playing from from in front, it's harder to see Devontae Freeman having a big game. Devontae Freeman is actually a little bit interesting to me this week as well. And then we get to Dante Foreman in this three-way split where he is the leader, but, you know, he's the leader in a three-way split. Same, Same as Michael Carter, right? But people aren't going to be thinking about Michael Carter. People are going to be thinking about Dante Foreman. So with the way that the running back position shakes out this week, Michael Carter is actually pretty interesting to me at 4,700, specifically because it allows you to pay down twice at running back and frees up some extra salary to be a little bit more aggressive at wide receiver or at quarterback or at tight end or at defense or wherever else you want to be a little bit more aggressive. So Michael Carter goes on to this roster And then there ends up being this very interesting situation where there's 5,200 in salary left over. Christian Kirk is 5,300, but I don't really want to switch a bunch of things to get up to Christian Kirk because Christian Kirk, even with DeAndre Hopkins out, they're playing the Lions. The Cardinals are probably not going to be passing a ton in this spot. I actually played around with James Conner plus Chase Edmonds, partly out of disappointment for the fact that I talked about this in Inner Circle, but uh, disappointment over the fact that I didn't spot the cheat code last week. The Melvin Gordon plus Javante Williams 
cheat code. You could have played them both together given the uncertainty of that week. Now, the, the one time I ever played the cheat code was Isaiah Crowell and Duke Johnson in 2017 and finished 10th place in the Game Changer with that roster, which made the roster visible enough that some people started attacking it on Twitter, being like, what's wrong with this guy playing these two running backs together? And I laid out the thinking and it was basically, it was it was the week before Thanksgiving. So it was deep into the season and Player pricing was to a point where most players, same as now, were pretty much appropriately priced or overpriced. And those two running backs, if I, if I remember correctly, which I'm pretty sure I do, those two running backs cost 7.8K in salary combined. So really, 30 plus points, you would have felt pretty good about the output you were getting. And they'd had games that year where they'd gone for 35, 36, I believe even up to 40 points together. They ended up putting up 24 together that week, or maybe it was even like 22. And well, I was still able to finish 10th place out of, I think it was like 5,000 entries. And so because of that, it looked like, well, if this guy hadn't been an idiot and played these two running backs together, then he probably could have gotten first place in this tournament. But what I'm looking at is range of outcomes. And in their range of outcomes was a 5X game with a pretty good likelihood of a 4X game between their combined salary. So ever since then, because it kind of became this public discussion point, there were people asking me in 2018, 2019, hey, is this a cheat code opportunity? Is this a cheat code opportunity? And I, and I kept saying, you know, the cheat code opportunities are pretty rare. And I was always looking for them and then kind of stopped looking for them. And the worst part about missing last week's cheat code was I had Antonio Gibson in the Chiefs defense on my roster. My other decision point was I could have gone Melvin Gordon and the Broncos defense. Now, the points wouldn't have worked out too differently. Melvin Gordon would have significantly outscored Antonio Gibson, but the Chiefs defense made up for a lot of that. I think I was down like seven or eight points from what I could have had. But the reason I didn't play Melvin Gordon was because the thinking would be, okay, everybody thinks Javante Williams is going to get all this work, get all these points. But Melvin Gordon is probably going to come back and have the exact same role. Everybody's saying, okay, Melvin Gordon's probably the, the, the lead back now because he had this good game. Or, and I kept saying, even if, even if Javante Williams just has a 60% share of the, of the, of the snaps. Uh, and it was like, that's not how NFL teams work. Why would we expect Vic Fangio after 13 weeks of seeing these guys in practice, in games, breaking down film, self-scouting every week, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, Javante Williams had a, a, a good game when Melvin Gordon was out. He's the starter now. So I went into the week saying, look, this is probably a 50-50 split. And if Williams is going to be three times, four times as owned as Melvin Gordon, this is great leverage. Melvin Gordon has the big game, Javante Williams disappoints, and I blow past everybody. But digging deeper... Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams almost always end up with about the same score as one another. And there have been like three weeks this season where one of them significantly outscored the other. And the rest of the weeks, they were within one, two, three points of one another. So my thought was, okay, well, Melvin Gordon's only 500 less than Javante Williams, and they typically score about the same. So I'm really not gaining significant leverage. There are more powerful ways to use this roster spot. And yet, even though I liked Melvin Gordon and knew that he and Javante Williams typically score about the same, I didn't make that next leap to say, oh, or you could play them together. Last week, they cost 11K in combined salary. They went for about 47 points, so just over 4X their combined salary. So I go through that whole story to say an 11K 
running back combo is definitely different than an 8K running back combo. But we are in a weird week. Nine games on the main slate now. Lots of weird things up in the air. Oh, we just went through the reason why all these running backs are overpriced. And basically, if we can get three and a half to four X from our running back position, we're probably in pretty good shape, especially in smaller field tournaments. Anything under a few thousand entries, you'd feel pretty good about just taking a four X. So I do think that James Conner and Chase Edmonds together is an interesting way to go. They cost 11.5K in combined salary. And if you got 40 plus points, you would feel really good about that. The one thing that's pulling me away from that is... With the Broncos last week, we know that if they're in control of a game, they're just going to run the ball. The Cardinals are going to run the ball, but they're also still going to pass the ball. So that brought me to this interesting point in this bottom-up build where I I don't feel like Kirk is this great play because I still expect the Cardinals to be more run-heavy than normal in this spot. So I don't want to move around a bunch of salary or a bunch of plays that I've already put in place just to free up an extra $100 in salary to get up to Christian Kirk. And that made me think, well, Chase Edmonds is 5,100. He's 100 under what I can spend instead of 100 over what I can spend. And I've gone through all of this stuff about, hey, look, you could actually play Connor and Edmonds together and kind of pushed me to realize, hey, that means you could actually play Edmonds solo. Edmonds probably doesn't get you 20 points at 5,100. But as we've worked through on this slate, most players aren't going to get you that 4X that you're typically looking for. So Chase Edmonds' healthy games earlier in the season, 14.6, 12.5, 14.5, 20.9, a couple down games, and then 10 and 15.9. So most of his games, he's getting this 15 to 20 point range, which is 3X to 4X in salary. And on this particular week, That's pretty good. So Chase Edmonds at 5,100 on a lengthier than expected angles podcast is how we wrap up this bottom-up build, which gives us a stack from the Ravens and Packers game, Tyler Huntley, plus Devontae Adams and Alan Lazard from the Packers side of the ball, three running backs in James Robinson, Michael Carter and Chase Edmonds, Devontae Parker as our last wide receiver, Evan Ingram as our tight end who kind of frees up some flexibility in other spots, and the Steelers as our defense trying to target one of these 15 to 20 point defense special teams scores. With that, we will call this an end to the Angles podcast. If you are in Inner Circle, keep in mind 117 of those memberships left. If you're not in Inner Circle, but you might be interested in paying a one-time fee and having OWS for life, uh, you'll have that opportunity starting in week 18. And then also for everybody, check the Angles email next week, week 16, we will be announcing the winners of the missions drawings. With that, I am out of here. We will see you on the site throughout the weekend. I will see you on the initial pass of the player grid late Friday night and on an update Sunday morning. And we will see you, of course, at the top of the leaderboards when it's all said and done.